Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tortoise. Hello. And welcome to The News Meeting, the podcast where we bring you into our newsroom to try and answer the question, what should lead the news? I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise. In previous lives, I was the editor of The Times newspaper. I then ran BBC News. And so now for Tortoise, as then in those newsrooms, I'm trying to figure out what the running order should be. Three journalists are going to pitch their top story of the week, and we'll try and get to grips with what the story really is, whether it matters, and where it goes. And at the end, I'll make a call on what leads, what follows and why. So from Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. Joining me to pitch their stories are Tortoise editors Jeevan Vassagar, Jane Bruton and Giles Wittell. Hello all. Hello. 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 Hi James. Um, before we hear what they think mattered most this week, let's just have a quick reminder of what's happened in the past seven days. The skies over Kiev lit up as one after another Russian attack drones were met by Ukrainian air defenses. More than three dozen shot down, according to the Ukrainian government. The Conservative government is talking to supermarkets about how to bring down prices. A very un-Tory intervention. Tonight, after two decades in power, Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has won yet again. If we make 2024 election a referendum on Joe Biden and his failures, and if we provide a positive alternative for the future of this country, Republicans will win across the board. We really are at this moment in history where, for the first time ever, we might be driving ourselves extinct with the technology we're building. All right, let's see what you each think mattered most this week. Let's do it in a single sentence. Long story short, Jeevan, you go first. So, James, my story is race to the bottom. <laughs> it's sort of every story. <laughs> Jane. <laughs> Mine's that as well. No, it's not. Mine is um, nothing to see here, nothing. <laughs> Giles. Cult of secrecy. I like it that you're, uh, that's your film promo voice. Yes. <laughs> Great. All right. Let's, uh, let, let, let's go first um, with you, Jane, if you would. So nothing to see here, nothing. Yes. So on Tuesday this week, a story broke in an American paper, the New York Times, quite a big one, headlined, a British reporter had a big Me Too scoop. Her editor killed it. 
Yes. Quite dramatic. So the New York Times claimed that um, Madison Marriage, a very respected FT journalist, um, had investigated a columnist for the Observer newspaper who was called Nick Cohen. Who is called Nick Cohen. Who had left with a settlement following claims of sexual harassment spanning um, 17 years. Marriage, according to the New York Times, had on the record interviews with two named women and documentary evidence on others, but the editor of the FT chose not to publish the story. Because? Well, she said in a statement that that the FT maintained um, the right to decide what what stories um, were rigorous enough and, 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 you know, fulfilled their standards, which which, which every editor needs to do. I mean, it's not, you you have to make that decision. That's why why you're the editor. But Jane, was it it the issue that standards, i.e. were they well enough sourced or was it that it, it, somewhere I read that it wasn't an FT story, it wasn't a sufficiently business story, it was not clear what from the well, originally, it, it was. I mean, it had been it, it, the story was really about the Guardian. Because because, the Guardian owns the Observer because the Guardian owns the Observer, and Nick Cohen, this particular columnist, had left left in January this year, and they claimed that he left on health grounds. And in the leaving statement, um, Guardian bosses were praising his brilliant and incisive journalism. And um, Cohen confirmed to the New York Times that he had also left with a with a financial settlement. So, uh, so, so nothing to see here. Nothing. This is the story of one newspaper. The New York Times reporting that another newspaper, the FT, has investigated a third newspaper in the Guardian group in which the Guardian settled but didn't disclose the departure of one of its columnists and the FT had the goods on reporting it but didn't. Yes. Is that the story? Yes. The, the, the um, allegations against the columnist had come up um, on Twitter and, had, and had, um, a complaint had been made against them in 2018. They did eventually investigate the, the claims, but by then the person who'd made the claims, another journalist called Lucy Siegel, had sort of lost faith, faith in the whole process. And the, the results of the investigation never came to light because he left, um, or he left of his own accord on health grounds. All right, Jane. But before we get into it much further, there's obviously a difficulty here, which is we don't have Nick Cohen here, we don't have The Guardian here, we don't have Lucy Siegel, we don't have Madison Marriage, all the players in it. So, so what statements have they made? Um, they've all made different statements. I think all of the allegations were put by the New York Times to Nick Cohen, who didn't deny anything, but said that he had, I think he confirmed that he'd had um, a financial settlement. And then he said something like, oh, oh all that must have happened when I was drunk because he's a recovering alcoholic. Right. And then the, the, the there's not a direct quote from any of the other people that Madison Marriage allegedly cited in the uh, story that she was developing. No, because we haven't got sight of Madison's story, but um, the New York Times spoke to two other women who, who were directly quoted and named. But obviously we need to say that the, the other claims are alleged claims and um, nothing's been proven or investigated. And we'll, and we'll come to this, but the, the Guardian put out a statement and the, and the FT put out a statement say, explaining their decision in terms of not running the story. Is that right? The Guardian put out a statement saying that um, they had run their own investigation and that uh, Nick Cohen had left before of his, of his own accord. Charles, what do you think of this? I think the nut par in the New York Times story is that, the, that Fleet Street is too cosy. And so the scrutineers in this country have not turned the Me Too light on themselves. And I think after 25 years myself in in newspapers, that's unarguable. It's a small group of people uh, who have not proven themselves ready to shine a light on themselves as they have on other sectors of 
public life. Chief, what do you make of this? I think you've worked at The Guardian and the FT, yeah, <laughs> but so, not yeah. the New York Times so far. <laughs> to, yeah. to disclose my interest, I, I have worked at The Guardian and the FT, as you say, James. I know both Kath and Rula. I have huge respect for them. Um, I have to disagree with Giles uh, because I know Rula and I know that she's a fearless editor. Um, from the information that we have in front of us, the FT's decision not to publish this story was based on the fact that it wasn't a business story, which seems to me a reasonable decision. I think there are three, as you've pointed out, James, there are sort of three separate bits to this. There's a part of this is about Nick Cohen. There's a part of this is about The Guardian. And there's a part that's about the FT. The bit that I'm un- uncomfortable about is The New York Times' headline that blames a woman for this problem and blames, blames the female editor of the FT. I don't think that's right. And I don't think, I think the blame lies there. I feel that the story here is about The Guardian's management of this problem and the allegations against Nick Cohen. That's, what's, that's what matters. I, of course, worked at the FT too, so I worked with Rula Khalifa, editor too. And actually, this is putting aside the sort of personal decisions and the rights of editors to run or spike stories. That's always the case. And there's always a kind of, kind of weird combination of judgment, as we're trying to examine in this podcast, and instinct. You know, there, there, there is that. But in this case, the interesting point uh, as I read the story, was that the FT's call on this was, yes, this may be a really, uh, this may be a story, but it's not an FT story. I, it's not a story that moves the dial in the business world. And I just wanted to kick the tires on that idea, because where does a business story, where do business stories end? What's not a business story? I think it's a great question, James. Um, I, I guess one kind of point about The Guardian is that it isn't a very big business. So it's a turnover of, what, £250 million a year, something like that. It's it's relatively small in business terms. It's an important, influential British newspaper. So I think you can make an argument that if you, as the FT, cover the media sector, you ought to, you ought to think about this newspaper as kind of an important part of the media sector. So I, mean, I think you can debate it either way. But I think you're right to say that ultimately there's an element of instinct here. And it's hard to kind of it's hard to sort of second guess the element of instinct. You know, do you feel it to be a story? Do you feel the Guardian to be important? The, the only reason why I think people, I mean, I'm a former business journalist, as you know, and so I take the general view that everything's a business story sooner or later. <laughs> but but the reason why I think it, this is complicated and it kicks into Giles's point is that there is, and everyone knows it on Fleet Street, this suspicion out there, and it's certainly true in the political classes, and it's certainly true in, if you like, the the blogging world, that Fleet Street, Fleet Street doesn't do in its own, that there's a tendency not to go after other newspapers, journalists, editors, and that will have been a consideration in this case. Yeah. <laughs> Look, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was no, going to say, there's yeah. a possible footnote here, which is that um, we're talking about someone who's a columnist rather than someone who's a chief executive or an editor. So, I, and I don't know whether that should, which way that should influence us exactly. But oh, I, I see because they don't they don't have they don't have power in the or, same way. They don't way. have as much power as have, an editor. In, would have, in yeah. the sense, they don't have authority over teams of people, etc., etc. They but still Giles, bring in money, though, don't they? Giles, what do you think? I think that we're in great danger of becoming part of the coziness, right? Mm. Uh, you know and respect Rula Khalif. Mm. I know and respect you. You've zoomed to her defence. With respect to you, I think 
her argument that this wasn't a, an FT story is nonsense. The great thing about the FT is a very broad definition of business. It covers everything, to be honest. It covers everything very well. Uh, we all know um, instinctively that the real criterion by which you uh, judge whether to run a story or not is whether it's a good story. This was a cracking story. Uh, but it, I, can, I can say from my own experience that uh, I wouldn't be ready to uh, dish the dirt on someone from my past in the newspaper that I work for now because it's all too close. It's all too, too, and, 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 and difficult. Um, I get a very strong sense we could do the whole, Jay, the whole, <laughs> the whole news meeting on exactly this. Um, obviously proof that we're in danger of succumbing to the fact that, you know, journalists love stories about journalists probably more than listeners or readers. Um, but Jeevan, why don't we turn to you? What's your story? Sure. So my story is um, a science story, but it's also a diplomatic story and also a business story. Before I get into what the story is, I just want to kind of paint a picture of what it is we're talking about and, and Jules Verne style, take you on a trip to the bottom of the sea. So <laughs> basically, the, the sea floor is sort of thick, oozy, sticky mud. It's a place that's sort of hard for sea creatures to make a home in. And what happens uh, over time is that things fall from higher, upper levels of the ocean. So a shark's tooth will fall, a fragment of fish bone will fall. These things get wrapped up in minerals, in cobalt, manganese, nickel. They become something called nodules, which is a sort of potato-like lump of metal, basically. These metals are obviously really, really valuable to the green transition. They power your Tesla. They power all your electrical appliances. Um, but... They're also places that sea creatures anchor themselves, sponges, other creatures. So the story that I'm pitching is a, is a new scientific study which looks at an area called the Clarion-Clipperton Zone, a huge area of, uh, area of the Pacific, and says, says that there are 5,000 species living there, the vast majority of which are hitherto unknown to science. So this is looking oh, at... Where, where is this? So this is, this is a huge area between Mexico and Hawaii. So this is a vast chunk of the Whoa. Pacific Ocean. This is the place that... Um, uh, there are applications to start mining the seabed for these minerals. So there's an organization called the International Seabed Authority. It's a UN-affiliated body. They're going to hear the first application in July, which comes from Nauru, a small Pacific island, uh, which is teamed up with a Canadian business called the Metals Company to mine the seabed. So the argument is the way to get the world off fossil fuels is to go and rip up the ocean floor. So it's an amazing story that puts kind of you know, one green objective against another has has a, a businessman called Jared Barron, who's going to make a lot of money out of this, has an impoverished Pacific country, Nauru, which is also hoping to make a lot of money out of this, and has scientists racing to figure out what we don't know and what we don't yet understand about what, what's actually at the bottom of the, bottom of the sea. And how does it work? Do you literally just scoop up these potato-like compounds and then and then break them up at the surface. So it's you, yeah, exactly. So you're basically dredging up the ocean floor, gathering up these nodules, and then and then processing them and extracting the, extracting the minerals. And obviously that sounds terrible. Is there any... And I, and I get the point about Nauru, and I get the point about alternatives to fossil fuels, but do we know what happens to the sea floor and do we know what happens to the ecosystems of the oceans when you do remove a stretch of these nodules. Listen to me, I sound like I know what I'm talking about. But, you know, what, what happens then? It's great to have you use the word nodule so confidently. <laughs> yeah. So, so there are, there's argument and counter-argument about what happens next. And there is an argument from people who want to do this, that the seabed will, will be restored. It just regenerates itself. It'll regenerate, or that these creatures will migrate to live in other areas. And, and there are other people saying, look, we just don't know. We don't know what will happen. We don't know how long it will take to restore. We don't know whether these species are unique to these particular spots, and they won't find places to live anywhere else. 
And there's a there's a diplomatic fight going on over this. So as I've mentioned, a UN body is hearing the application. Nauru is in support of it. Other countries are saying, no, no, hold on, we don't know enough. And the French are saying, let's just ban this because we, because we think this is too dangerous. And who owns the seabed? Uh, so this is, these are international waters. So that's why that's why it's going to a UN body. So in this so we're sense, talking about the high seas. You're going to be getting mining rights to a stretch of land if you were considering it on land mm-hmm. that that no one owns. I no one's licensing it. exactly. And so there are no social revenues that come from it. What's the if I if I do mine the, mine that? Who do I pay for the privilege? So um, so you you apply to the UN for permission to do this. Um, and then the money that you make from mining the seabed, that, that's, that's shared between the country that's sponsoring you, in this case, Nauru, and, and, and then, sort of, then the rest goes to your investors, basically. But to be clear, these aren't Nauru territorial waters. No, this is the high seas we're talking about. They're onto a good thing. Yeah. Nauru? Yeah. What do you think, Giles? Uh, I think in an ideal world, you do this transition to electric vehicles without uh, mining the seabed. Uh, but it's not an ideal world. We do have to do the transition. Um, I once uh, hosted a chat at COP26 with a deep sea mining expert from Exeter University who made a nuanced case in favour of deep sea mining on the basis that you might be able to get enough of these materials on land. But on balance, it looks as if the mining would be more damaging ecologically if you do it all on land than if you do some of it uh, in the Pacific. And I think key, key point here about deep sea mining, it hasn't been tried on, at scale yet, right? It's only pilots, is that this is a vast, vast area. You could control the sections of that area that you despoil. And I think you would have to do it eyes wide open on the assumption that you could not restore, that it wouldn't, that, that whatever you mined would be strip mined and it would not, you wouldn't get new nodules back except in geological time. Jane, can I ask you, without drilling into your detailed knowledge of the Clarion <laughs> Clipperton zone, but what about the sort of news value story of this? Because when you hear Jeevan, I mean, apart from the fact it's brilliantly kind of sold, you're like, oh, God, that's amazing and it's dramatic. You can also think sort of, how does that land? How does it lead? What do you think about this as well, a news story? Well, you know what I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about? I want to know more about the, these 5,000 species and what they look like. I mean, everybody loves a, uh, loves an undiscovered creature. I mean, I'm kind of imagining Loch, the Loch Ness Monster, but I'm, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing they're kind quite of, small. I don't know if any of them are cute. <laughs> yes. This may no, be an they issue. could be very ugly ones. It's okay. You can either have very cute ones or incredibly ugly ones. <laughs> Anything sort of bland. But it's like Hobson's Choice, isn't it? That's what makes it a really good dramatic story. I mean, it's this is what are our, our, our other options that's what and the, and the person who's got to decide you know we we you know we lose this to gain this you know is this a, is this our only option to save the planet but but can i ask you fun if i was talking to someone this week because i was talking about how do you in fact how do we try to cover the ocean and i'm saying it's really a, it's a massive story it's really difficult it's really difficult because it's got few people in it doesn't have many characters developments on it are enormously important and also slow and and not event-based. It's quite hard to do those ocean stories. And, and when I listen to this, it's a case in point, which is, you know, we're lucky we're sitting with Jeevan and he's explaining it. But if you were just coming on it cold, you'd be like, hang on, where is that? What is that? Who Who's doing that? How do you make a story? I mean, Jeevan, you've obviously thought about this. How do you make a story like this lead? I think what's interesting 
to me about it, well, two things. Firstly, I think Giles makes a really interesting point about these are all difficult choices. If you go, if you go and extract nickel from the rainforest or get uh, cobalt out of the Congo, those aren't pleasant choices either. I think the thing that interests me about it journalistically is exactly that, that there's a fight here. And I think the way that I try to report it is to say, who's making the money? Where does the money go? And also, what's the diplomatic fight on both sides? So obviously, people are going to marshal scientific evidence on both sides. Countries are going to come to the table and say, look, the seabed's going to be fine. Other countries are going to say the seabed's going to be devastated. These scientists need money to do their research. I wonder where the money comes from. I'd like to kind of, I think there's there's an investigation to be done here to figuring out who's lobbying, who's on either side, who's going to make money out of it, and who's putting money into it now. So let's imagine that either a radio news bulletin or a newspaper led on headline, Canadian miner backed by Pacific Island looks to dredge the seabed for EV battery minerals. Would you honestly, Jane, think slow news day? Oh, yes, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have switched off uh, halfway through that that (laughs) With the headline. You can see why they never got me to write headlines. Yeah. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Um, all right. I'm going to turn to uh, Giles. What's your story? What did you say story was? My story is about secrecy, cult of secrecy. Cult of secrecy, yes. Are you ready? Yes. So the Cabinet Office, which is the big top of the British Civil Service, has until four o'clock today, which is Thursday, as we're recording, to decide whether to hand over everything requested, all materials, uh, to Baroness Hallett, who is chairing the official inquiry into the government response to to the pandemic. It is so far dragging its feet and asserting that uh, civil servants have the right to decide on behalf of ministers what is handed over. And underlying that is the principle that ministers should be allowed to um, conduct discussions forming policy in private, uninhibited by wondering how it would play out if they became public. I 
think there are four important things to bear in mind in terms okay, of con- context. This is the pandemic, which is unprecedented. Uh, 226,000 UK residents died. We're not dealing with, with, with any relevant precedent here. Um, according to our own tortoise inquiry into this, which was only preliminary, obviously, but was done in a much more timely fashion two years ago, there is compelling evidence already that uh, the UK government, then led by Boris Johnson, delayed lockdown at a cost of tens of thousands of lives, um, in the process ignored compelling evidence coming from Italy and elsewhere in Europe, um, broadly speaking, didn't take the whole pandemic seriously un- until it was too late. We probably remember footage of Johnson proudly saying that he'd been into a hospital with COVID patients, sleeves rolled up and shaken everyone by the hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that the UK was already, in any case, badly prepared for the next uh, pandemic, which had been warned by its own advisors, would come. And that was evidenced, among other things, by the total failure to procure or, or have PPE in place in time. Um, I think that the Cabinet Office's response so far, which, by the way, is in contrast to Boris Johnson's own rather tactical response, which is to resist disclosure and then suddenly disclose or say he's disclosed everything that the inquiry wants in order to open up uh, clear blue water between himself and the Cabinet Office. And so we are now focusing on the Cabinet Office. But the Cabinet Office's stance is based on what I think is entirely the wrong default in British political culture, which is to withhold, (laughs) not to disclose. Um, uh, It's a habit of, um, I, I think we can say, I hope we can say ask covering, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which which pervades the entire civil service. Um, and uh, finally, Hallett herself is an experienced judge. She is saying, let me decide what is relevant. And I think that's an entirely legitimate um, uh, position in the circumstances. Not least, she's already made clear, I understand, she said, to, to the Cabinet Office that many of the materials that I'm requesting you say are unambiguously irrelevant. I want to find out, she's saying, what else you were thinking about. So for context. Yes. So, you, so the points are, the four points are, A, this is COVID. B, we know that the government itself and Boris Johnson's government made mistakes. We need to get to the bottom of those because lives are lost. Culture of withholding and the right of a judge to make a judgment on what's relevant and what's not for reasons of context in the whole process. Yes. All right. So can I say, just, just, can I just give you my prejudice on this story as a story, which is all of those things are true. So, um, and we'll come to the, the fourth one, the sort of judge versus the right of civil servants to give advice in private. But isn't this a really, really in the weeds process story, Giles, which is, it's not really getting you much closer to understanding what happened in COVID. It doesn't get you to the mistakes. It's it's a really an argument about what gets admitted. The Cabinet Office says, look, we will admit everything that's relevant and we will explain why we think this is irrelevant when we do redact it. I mean, it's really in the weeds, isn't it? No, I, I disagree. This is about a government and a political culture seeking at the first, well, frankly, at every opportunity to uh, resist disclosure in order to rewrite history uh, in on a on a subject that of colossal sort of structural importance to the health service, but also personal importance to everybody who lost somebody in in the pandemic. And I think on a personal level, in, f- from the perspective of a news consumer, mm-hmm. I don't know if you can tell. I don't know if the veins are standing up on my neck. It's a story that would get people really angry. It's a story about um, not being honest. 
Jen, what do you think? I'm absolutely astounded by this story. I can't believe that that, that um, the cabinet office can dis- decide what to disclose to the person to to Baroness Hallett. I mean, of course, she has to have context for it all. And the other thing that um, I find really, really deeply disturbing and makes me furious is the whole kind of like playing politics that's going on with you know Boris Johnson marching up to the cabinet office saying, "Here's all my WhatsApps. Um, you know, you can hand them over if you." Like, I mean, haven't we had enough of that? But really? Ju- but ju- just one thing, Jean, I, w- I want to know what you think, but let me just kind of p- play the other side of it, which is what we are seeing is that every time the requirements of transparency put pressure on people in power to show their workings, they, they move to another environment. So they're going to move from written advice. Now it turns out they exchange on WhatsApps. WhatsApps are going to now all be disclosable. We're going to keep on having the same issue. And the reason is, is that when we make decisions at speed, we don't know exactly what the right thing to do is. And we're frightened to get found out in retrospect. There's got to be some understanding, hasn't there, of the fact that people aren't all knowing and otherwise, and they're going to feel humiliated. And the, and the risk is we don't get candid discussions because people are worried about what the eyes of history are going to do to them, how they're going to get judged. I, I've got some sympathy with all this. That's exactly the reason I'm interested in this story, because I see this as a tech story. Huh. And, and WhatsApp is doing to government what it's, what it's doing to all the rest of us, which is, you know, you're waking up and you're getting messages from, from your husband, wife, an estate agent, and also three work messages. And it's yes. all kind of flowing into each yes, other. Yes, yes. Um, and you're also kind of creating this system of comms that is both kind of only semi-visible to other people in government and the civil service but highly visible to people outside government. So it's very, very easy to leak it to a friendly journalist, to hand it over to a friendly journalist. Very difficult for people in bureaucracy to see what you're doing. So it raises a really interesting question about how should government communicate? But, 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 your, but, but your point is right. So let's say, for example, in the middle of all of this, the pet went to the vet, right? And the Justice Hallett and, by extension, the public are able to say, look, so-and-so didn't have their eye on the ball that day because they were distressed about the pet, Right. In a blame culture, in a gotcha culture, isn't there some reasonable expectation that civil servants can have that says, look, this is not fair. I'm also a person. I'm trying to live with the realities of life. Is there something, some some reasonable case they've got that the context of their own lives shouldn't be played in to a public inquiry? But James, isn't that an argument for saying that ministers should be compelled to communicate in a particular way, that they shouldn't be on WhatsApp, that they should be doing this by email? that there should be formal structures around it. Giles? I think if the default was more disclosure, then the inquiry in the public would be much more sympathetic to the vet, the pet going to the vet. I think ev- I think everyone understands that. So, the, just, and just get me, the headline of this story is essentially Whitehall blocks judge on access to information in COVID inquiry. Yeah, we can shorten that. Yeah, what was he? I'm not really very good at this, am I? <laughs> Whitehall what? blocks judge on COVID inquiry. Okay, <laughs> all right. All right well, your, your job here seems to be writing the most boring headlines. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I, as you know now, working a little with me, it's a combination of things, boring headlines, but really, really boring stories too. <laughs> Sometimes they really match. All right, well, listen, before I try and give my uh, view on what, what leads, let's just go around. Uh, Jane, you know the deal here is you have to choose a story and you can't choose your own. Oh, so why don't so you go, for, uh, go first? What would you choose to lead? Um, well, I, lo- I do love the um, um, Jeevan story, but I think the story of the week has got to be the WhatsApps. So I'm going to go with Giles. Jeevan? I think I agree with Jane. I think WhatsApp is the story of the week. Uh, but, but but I think because 
I'm intrigued in it as a tech story rather than as a Westminster process story. I'm going to go with the nodules because, well, for all the reasons uh, Jeevan uh, set out and also because he'd do it so beautifully. <laughs> um, all right. Well, listen, on that note, it's a really interesting one because you don't have a moment in the news this week where something, if you like, happened. I mean, I'm interested, for example, that we didn't go for Novak Djokovic, right, the moment that, you know, he became an explicitly more political character. We didn't go for the back and forth on the debt ceiling. And I'm kind of glad about that. But it's one of those interesting weeks where you really do get to choose, where your newsroom that says, look, this is what we think matters, rather than we're just propelled by events and the surprise of something that's happened. And so for that reason, I think my running order would run like this. I think the third story uh, I'd run, actually, Jane, is yours, although it's probably the one that's obviously closest to us and we can read in the personalities and the judgments and the implications most closely. And I do think it has a big uh, and meaningful uh impact on the way in which the public understands the press and the culture of journalism in this country. And so for that reason, to your point, you definitely run it. You want it aired. But the reason I think it comes third is that it is a story about the way in which news judgments are made and the way in which um, personnel and, and issues of uh, sexual impropriety and ha harassment are handled. But it's one that you want to read into rather than lead the news. I think it's a, well, it's a third. I think the second story, to my mind, is actually Giles's story in that I am really interested in the tussle between the civil service and a judge. I am really interested in getting to the truth, truth on COVID. But it's very rare that a big story on the future of the planet walks in and in a way in which you can tell that it's a story about a fork in the road, about the future of our oceans, the future of our transport system, the future of climate. And I can actually understand what the story is. It's not something that's a, uh, you know, creeping story about, you know, 1.5, 1.7. You know, it's not a story about a bunch of academics telling you that the world is on fire. It's a choice that the world needs to make. And it's coming at us. And so for that reason, do we or don't we dredge the bottom of the sea feels like the story that should lead this week. Sea anemones are grateful. <laughs> well done, Jeevan. Yeah, I was what? so pissed off that I didn't win. <laughs> but look, can I just say, it's not supposed to be a win. It's supposed to be like one of these moments where we sagely decide what leads the news. No, no, you no. Must think, you must think that Jeevan's it was, his, his story yeah, is more know, important. the story that I, I wanted to win once. That's terrific. Well no, done. I, <laughs> I just can't so, believe he didn't mention the gummy squirrel that I read about as being one of the creatures was, at the bottom of the sea. That was my back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and as the... Um, What's it? Seen enemies. The mollusks dance a jig. <laughs> That's it for this week's news meeting. Uh, thank you to Jeevan. Thank you to Charles. Thank you to Jane uh, for bringing the stories this week. And thank you, of course, for listening. Next week, I'm going to be joined by three more tortoise journalists, and they're going to be trying to convince me that they've got the story that mattered the most in the news meeting. Please join us. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.